Turn for our scripture reading tonight to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. read the first 18 verses of Philippians chapter 2, and the text for our sermon is verses 14 through 18. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then what follows in verses 14 through 18 is the text for the sermon tonight. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Read the word of God that far tonight. Again, our text is those last verses, verses 14 through 18. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, One of the issues that was plaguing the congregation in Philippi were subtle divisions in that congregation that were tearing at their unity and peace. And in the first part of Philippians chapter 2 here, the word of God exhorted those saints to preserve and manifest the peace of the church to do that by laying aside all selfishness and pride. Then flowing out of that, in verse 12 of the chapter, there's set before them a general calling with respect to the whole of the Christian life. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then, in our text, the Word of God makes a specific application of that. The broad calling that speaks to the whole of the Christian life is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. One particular application of that is this. 
do all without murmurings and disputings. Do all without complaining and arguing. This word of God is appropriate for us to consider at the occasion of infant baptism. When we think about the sin of complaining, we often think readily of children and of young people that this is a sin that they are prone to. One of the things that parents are called to in the rearing of their children is to address that, to call them to a life of gratitude before the face of God and to warn them against a sinful grumbling and complaining. But this word of God is also for adult believers. This is not just a sin that children are guilty of. It's a sin that all struggle with. This is something for parents, not only for the children, but for the parents also. There may be a temptation on the part of parents to complain about that calling and to complain about their children. This is a word of God for those who are married. As there's a temptation to complain about our spouse or to argue sinfully with them. It's a word of God then that has application to the whole of the church of Jesus Christ and how we are to live as believers before the face of God and as we walk in the midst of this world. This word of God forces each of us to examine ourselves carefully. Is it true of you and of me that we are guilty of murmuring and complaining? others say about us that that one has a sour spirit, constantly dissatisfied, always complaining about everything, nothing's ever right, nothing's ever good enough. We're constantly venting about all of our gripes. We're constantly bellyaching about any circumstance in our life. Is that true in our homes? Does that characterize our life at work? Is that how we live in the midst of Christ's church? And is it the case that you and I are also guilty of disputings, sinful arguing? Is it the case that we're constantly at loggerheads with everyone else? We can never live in peace with others. Something's always an argument. Always have to make sure that we get our say in and get our way. But we can never acquiesce to someone else or something else. These sins are no minor thing. The Word of God warns very clearly against them here in the Word of God. And these sins are serious because they tear at precious unity and peace where our homes or our marriages are characterized by sinful complaining and arguing. There's no peace there. And the same is true, according to the word of God here, more broadly in the church of Jesus Christ. So important is the unity and the peace of the church of Jesus Christ that the word of God warns us here, do all without complaining and arguing. Let's consider the word of God tonight, taking as the theme, do all without complaining and arguing. First, let's notice the command. Secondly, the purpose of that. And then thirdly, what the result is according to the text here. The text warns against two closely related temptations in the life of believers. Murmurings and disputings. First, it warns against murmurings. The word there, 
murmuring literally means to grumble, to mutter, or to complain. It's the verbal expression of a spirit of discontent and anger and dissatisfaction. The word in the original, interestingly, is what we call an onomatopoeia. If you recall from an English or a literature class, the word onomatopoeia is a literary term that describes a certain word, the sound of which is very similar to what it's trying to describe. An example in the English language would be the word bark. The word bark itself is intended to convey the sound that a dog's make, and the word itself sounds like that. Another example would be the word buzz. It conveys the sound, for example, that a, a bee makes as it flies, and the word buzz itself sounds like what it's intending to describe. There are many other examples, the hoot of an owl or the squeak of a mouse or the squawk of a parrot. That's the case here with the word in the original. The Greek word literally is gaguzo. When you hear in the word itself a grumbling, complaining, muttering sound. One who's guilty of gaguzo is grumbling, muttering, complaining. That word here is the echo of the great sin of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. Same word is used elsewhere to describe that sin of Old Testament Israel. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 10 and 11, Neither murmur ye as some of them, people of Old Testament Israel, also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. God led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by a mighty hand and with many mighty miracles. And you would expect that the response of the people would be gratitude. God's brought them out of cruel bondage. He led them by a miracle through the Red Sea brought them safely to the other side, and you would expect their response to be gratitude to God, never losing sight of the great salvation that God had wrought. But that's exactly what happened. Having forgotten about all that God had done for them, they were a grumbling and complaining people in the wilderness. They grumbled about the way in which God was leading them. They grumbled about their leaders, Moses and Aaron. They grumbled because they didn't have any water. They grumbled because they didn't have any food. And then when God rained manna down from heaven, day after day, they grumbled about the food that God gave to them. They were a miserable, grumbling, complaining people. And apparently, the same sin was evident in the lives of the saints in Philippi. We're not told at all what exactly they were complaining about. But notice in the text that the word is in the plural. It's not just murmuring, singular, but it's murmurings, plural. And that indicates that there were many things that they were complaining about. There was a grumbling spirit that was found amongst the saints there. What the Old Testament history indicates and what the Word of God here in Philippians indicates is that this is a great temptation for God's people at every time and in every age. This is a temptation, certainly, for children and for young people. Children might complain about the meal that mom has made for supper that night. They might grumble about the clothes that they have to wear to school. They might mutter about their teacher and about the schoolwork that they're assigned to carry out. 
They might grumble about the chores that dad and mom expect of them around the house. There may be an ungrateful, grumbling spirit among our children. What's sad to witness is that when we provide so much for our children, they might have a day filled with all kinds of fun and exciting things where dad and mom have treated them in different ways. And one thing goes wrong. One thing goes contrary to the way that the child or that young person wants it to go. And immediately their response is one of anger, dissatisfaction, grumbling, and complaining. The word of God to children, to young people is, do all without murmurings, without complainings. This is not only a temptation that our children fall into. This is a temptation for every believer. This is a temptation for those who are married. That they might go to someone else, a friend or another family member, and start heaping on their husband or their wife, complaining about them and things that they've done. Can be a temptation for parents with respect to their children. They get together one with another and they're complaining about the calling of being a parent and complaining about their children. And for so many other reasons, as believers, we can be guilty of this sinful, ungrateful spirit. We can be guilty of complaining about God's calling for our life as he calls us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, applying the truth of the gospel to every aspect of our life, including the calling to deny ourselves and take up our cross and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And because that way demands so much of us and requires of us that we deny ourselves, we can respond sinfully and complaining. We might grumble about God's will for our life. God's will for our life may be very difficult. Many trials, many hardships, discouragements that we face. We don't minimize the difficulty of that for the child of God. And yet, sinfully, our response to God's will and his way for our life may be a sinful grumbling and complaining. A bitter, sour spirit towards God. We can be guilty of complaining about others in the church of Christ. Often that grumbling and complaining spirit is directed to office bearers in the church. To elders especially. It's not to say that elders can never make a mistake or that they may never need to be corrected. That's true. But sinfully our response can be to grumble and to complain, not to talk to the elders ourselves about the difficulty that we have or to address them in the right way, but to go behind their back and to talk about them to everyone else and to grumble and to complain about how miserable they are. That can be the way in which we deal with other members of the church. We live together as a body of believers, a gathering of sinners. We see weaknesses, we see sins in others, and our attitude toward the other members is a, a complaining spirit. No one ever does anything right. No one ever does what's good enough. There's only weaknesses and sins that we see in everyone else so that we have a, a sour spirit toward the church of Jesus Christ. And for a hundred other reasons or more, we can be guilty of complaining, murmuring. It's important to understand is what lies at the heart of that. It stands behind that sinful spirit. 
Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, the Word of God says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. And that's the same word that come to see is the word disputings here. And what that helps us understand is we have to get to the heart. What is it? lies behind that sinful, complaining spirit. And the context helps us understand that because earlier in chapter 2, it talks about, in verse 3, strife and vainglory. And the idea there is selfishness and pride. Why is it that I have a complaining spirit? Well, in part because in my heart is an attitude of selfishness and pride. In selfishness, I think I deserve this. In pride, I think of myself to be something, to be important, to be deserving, therefore, of, of certain things that I want. And because I don't receive all of that, I respond in sinful complaining. The Word of God then drives to our hearts. The command of God to us is do all without murmurings, without Complainings. And then secondly, there's the related sin that's addressed here. And that's the word that's translated disputings. The word literally refers to reasoning in one's own mind, thinking through certain thing, but then it comes to me reasoning with another person in a sinful and a contentious way. It means sinfully to be guilty of arguing, sinful controversy. That same word is used in Luke 9, verse 46, in reference to the sinful arguing of the disciples of Jesus. Then there arose a reasoning, a disputing, an argument, among them, among the disciples, which of them should be greatest? They're reasoning, they're arguing, they're disputing among themselves, which of us is, is the greatest of the disciples? That also was apparently an issue in the congregation in Philippi. Numbers were sniping at one another, at one another's throats over various issues. It's indicated in chapter 1, verse 27, where positively the call is to demonstrate the oneness of the church, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here in chapter 2, verse 2, called again positively to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, and warned in verse 3 against pride, and selfishness. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, we read, I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. You have these two women who were members of the church who apparently were locked in some sinful argument one with another. They're called to put that aside and to be one with each other. This call... The word of God that warns against sinful arguing is not referring to the child of God defending the truth of the gospel. By forbidding arguing, it's not referring to that, the proper calling that the word of God sets before us to, to proclaim and to defend the truth of the gospel. The word of God is addressing certain situations that are not issues related to the truth of the gospel, issues that perhaps belong to a matter of Christian liberty, or certain situations where the word of God does not clearly spell out exactly what must be done so that there has to be the application of sanctified wisdom and common sense to, to understand what's best. Example in a home, in family, in a marriage might be with respect to the use of finances. The Word of God doesn't address specifically how the husband and the wife in this circumstance are to 
uh, manage their finances, and the husband may have one view and the, the wife a different view, and sinfully, they dispute and argue one with another. There may be many examples in the church of Jesus Christ. It can be something as small as, for example, the kind of carpet to put in an addition in the church and one has one view and another has a, a different preference. It can be a matter that is more important to us. To use just one example that has arisen in our churches in the last number of years with a revision of our Psalter. We understand that the Word of God does not directly address that, that different Christians applying the different principles of the Word of God may come to different conclusions about what's best and what's wise. The Word of God says, in such circumstances, do all without arguing. It does not mean that every child of God is always going to agree with every other child of God on these issues, we may have very differing points of view. What's important is how we deal with those differences. The forbidding of sinful arguing means that we don't respond in such circumstances in impatience and losing our temper, quickly judging another, judging their heart, judging their motives means a willingness to listen, willingness to learn, willingness to acknowledge I may be wrong, another may be right. means a willingness and a humility to acquiesce to another so that when it doesn't go my way, that I don't cause trouble and, and stir up difficulties in home or in church because I haven't got my way, but it's the wisdom and the humility quietly to acquiesce when it goes someone else's way. Do all without sinful arguing, without sinful controversy. And again, what lies behind that is a heart of pride and of selfishness. What is it that ultimately stands behind our, our sinful arguing with another? It's a spirit of, of selfishness where we want our own way. It's a spirit of pride where I, I think myself better and all of my opinions are always right and everyone else is always wrong. So that I deal with these matters in the church in the home in a sinful, argumentative way. Notice the breadth of what the Word of God says here. It says, do all without complaining and arguing. There's no exceptions that are, are listed there. There's no room for the child of God to, to give excuses and say, well, in this circumstance, it's it's understandable and it's accepted. Do all without sinful complainings and sinful arguings. Not only does the Word of God set before us that calling, the Word of God also shows the power by which we're strengthened to live that way. You notice what comes right before verse 14. The well-known words of verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do. Power by which we're strengthened to forsake these sins is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ Remember, all that the Lord Jesus Christ endured on our behalf as he endured unimaginable suffering, the suffering of the wrath of God poured out upon him because of our sins, a suffering so great that it pressed out of him that bloody sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane as he wrestled with the, the calling to, to go the way of the cross. He never complained. 
never murmuring against God's way and God's will for him, but as the Lamb of God offered himself on the altar of the cross to atone for our grumblings and arguings. Look in faith at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in which alone there is forgiveness for our sinful arguings and complainings and look in faith daily to the cross of Jesus Christ and to the God of grace for the grace and the strength fight against and to flee from these temptations. God sets before us that command and indicates in the text as well what his purpose is in that. That's indicated at the beginning of verse 15 with the word that and what follows after that is indicating what God's purpose is. To understand what God's purpose is in calling us to forsake sinful arguing and complaining, we first have to see what those verses teach us about our identity as God's people. First of all, verse 15 identifies us as the sons of God, literally the children of God. We are not by nature, conceived and brought forth into this world as those whose spiritual condition is that of children of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that we were, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others, our actual spiritual condition as we were conceived and brought forth into this world was as those who were one with this world in the darkness of, of sin and unbelief. And it's only by the power of God's grace that we've been delivered from that. He's regenerated us, caused us to be born again from above. He's given to us the gift of faith. He's imputed to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, adopted us as his children and his heirs. And that saving work of God has its eternal origin, his eternal decree of election. Ephesians 1 verse 5 says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children in eternity, he chose us to be his people. And in time and history, he works that out and brings about the realization of that and his saving work in us. Who we are then is that we are the children of God. He's our Father. We're His sons and His daughters. He provides for us as a Father, providing for our needs, instructing us, correcting us. And as a Father, He loves us. This is our fundamental gospel identity. We are the children of God, the objects of the love of our Father. Secondly, notice that verse 15 says that we are the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. That word nation is literally generation, and a generation can refer to a period of time, or it can refer to the people who live during that period of time. And it's the latter that's in view here. It's referring to the people who live in that period of time. And that period of time is really the, the whole history of the world. God's people live in the midst of a, a wicked generation. That generation is described as being crooked and perverse, the word crooked is the word from which we get our English word scoliosis. It refers to the, the bending of the spine in an unnatural way. This generation is a 
scoliosis generation. It's a crooked generation, and it's perverse in that a similar idea, a, a twisted generation. What's crooked and what's twisted stands over against that which is upright, righteous, and straight. And that ultimately is God. It's who God is in himself. It's the revelation of God's being in his word and in his law that is the standard of what is upright and righteous and straight. And this wicked generation, this wicked world amongst whom we live is twisted, it's, it's crooked, it's out of harmony with the standard of who God is and his word. Painfully obvious for the people of God as we look out in the culture and the society in which we live today. Culture and society in which we live today is crooked and twisted. It's perverse. It's twisted and out of harmony with every law of God and even the laws of nature. And it's in the midst of this wicked world that we live as the sons and the daughters of God. And then third... Passage goes on to say at the end of verse 15, the first part of verse 16, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. We are the children of God. We live in the midst of a crooked, wicked generation, and we shine as lights in the midst of this world. It's referring to a star that shines over against the black, backdrop of the night sky. Having been redeemed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we who are the sons and the daughters of God, we are stars. We are those who shine with the light of the grace of God in the midst of a wicked world. Holding forth the word of life. The word of life is the, the word of the gospel that sets forth and declares Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The only one in whom there is spiritual life for spiritually dead sinners. As God's sons and daughters in the midst of a crooked generation, we hold forth that word of life. It can mean we hold it fast, we proclaim it, we defend it, but it also means we hold it forth, as in we proclaim it and we witness to it in the midst of this world. When we take all of that together, we can come to understand what the purpose of God is in calling us to forsake Sinful complaining and arguing, the purpose is our witness in this world. God's purpose in his children, not being characterized as complaining and arguing children, is our positive witness in the midst of this world. It's that we be, according to verse 15, blameless and harmless to be blameless means to be above reproach, above censure. It's not that the child of God never stumbles and falls into sin, but the, the general tenor of his life is lived for God in thankfulness for salvation. And to be harmless is to be pure, to, to live out of a a pure motive to glorify God and then to live in that way in our actions so that we don't do sinful harm to another. Sum all of this up. The Word of God is addressing these Philippians. Get your act together in the church. Don't deal with one another in a sinful complaining and an arguing spirit because that 
portrays a, a negative witness in the midst of this world. You give occasion to others in this wicked world to blaspheme the name of the God whom you confess. Do all without complaining and arguing. Such is the purpose of God in addressing this command to us, to our children. We are guilty of that ungrateful, sour, dissatisfied spirit. Others who come to see us and know us will begin to have occasion to blaspheme the God whom we love and to look with hatred at the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as being something that cannot give joy and something that has no power. If this is the way we live as Christians with that sinful, complaining, and arguing spirit. Others may come to the realization or the thought that, well, the God whom that, one, that person serves is, is a cruel taskmaster. The life lived in service to this God must be a life of, of misery and of bondage if, if this person is constantly complaining and arguing. the sake of our witness in the world, to adorn the glorious gospel, the word of life that we hold forth, we're called to forsake all sinful arguing and complaining, living a, a grateful, thankful life demonstrates that the God whom we serve is our Father. We're, we're His children. We stand out in the midst of this world. We serve a God who's a God who loves us. And the Christian life that we live is a demonstration that to serve this God is not cruel bondage, it's not slavery, but it's joyful liberty to be the sons and the daughters of his family and to live in grateful service to him. For the sake of our witness in this world as the children of God in a sinful, perverted world, do all without complaining and arguing. The result, according to the word of God here, is unique. The result of this is indicated at the middle of verse 16 in what follows at the end of verse 18, the apostle says in verse 16, with this result that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. The apostle is referring there to his boasting in the church in Philippi that in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, he may stand in the judgment day and boast in the saints there and give expression to the fact in that that his labors described here as his running and his, his laboring, his toil in the ministry was not vain. It was not empty or fruitless. The apostle is not in any way detracting from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In many other passages, he's indicated that the fruit of his labor is entirely the work of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Apostle knew in all of his labor that he labored on behalf of Jesus Christ, that the gospel he proclaimed was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that any fruit upon his labor was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
without in any way detracting from that, knowing full well that all of his ministry and all of the fruit was grounded in Jesus Christ, the apostle also realizes that he's privileged by God to rejoice in the fruit of his labors as the Holy Spirit has used him. And he declares to them that in the judgment day he will rejoice in them. It says something similar to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. That's the result of this church putting away all complaining and, and arguing. It's the joy of the Apostle Paul as he rejoices in the, the work of Christ in their hearts and in their lives. He rejoices in them because ultimately he loves them. And that, though not stated explicitly, is the sense of verses 17 and 18. It says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. The idea there is, of that offering is literally a pouring out of a drink offering. Certain times, certain sacrifices required not only the sacrifice of this animal upon an altar, but the pouring out of, of wine upon the sacrifice as a drink offering. The apostle is using that image to describe the pouring out of his life as a martyr for the sake of Christ uses the same word in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered, to be poured out at the time of my departure, as death is at hand. The apostle is saying I'm ready to be poured out with everything that's in me, even if it means my own life as I'm imprisoned here in Rome for the sake of the ministry, for the sake of the cause of Christ, and, and this church here in Philippi in particular. He loves them. In love for them, he rejoices in them and calls them to rejoice with him in the joy that he knows, even if it means his martyrdom. The application of this part of the Word of God is unique. It's not something that we would readily expect. We might think that the result or what's indicated here is that the child of God forsaking sinful arguing and complaining knows that this is pleasing to God. And certainly that's true and brings glory to his name. But the unique application that's made here is to office bearers, pastors, elders in particular, The Apostle Paul loved the congregation there, so his love for the Church of Christ lived in the hearts of faithful office bearers. They must carry out their work in love for the Church of Jesus Christ, and in love for them, they're ready then to be poured out to be poured out with all that they are, to give all that they have, and even their own life, if God would so require it, for the sake of Christ and his church. It's true of your office bearers. It's true of your elders and your deacons. They love you. They're ready to be poured out for you. That must be true. Whomever the Lord calls to be your pastor, he must labor in love for the church of Jesus Christ in a readiness to be poured out for you. In love for the church, office bearers rejoice in the work of God in the church. 
when the elders of the church see the members of the church putting off sinful complaining, putting off sinful arguing in their interactions with one another, when the elders of the church see positively God's people living thankful lives before God, lives of humility, lives in which they put the needs of others first, lives in which they live at peace one with another, that gives them tremendous joy. It gives them joy now, and that will be a joy of theirs in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and his return for the faithful office bearer who labors in love for the church, not only will there be the, the personal joy of our own salvation, but there will also in that day be a, a joy and a boasting, founded in Christ, of course, but a boasting in the church of Jesus Christ. As we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, we say this is our, our joy, our, our crown of rejoicing. It's the people of God whom I was privileged to serve standing here in glory. It's my rejoicing in the work of Christ in the church and in the lives of his people. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of your witness in the midst of this world, press on, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live together in the church of Jesus Christ and in your homes and your families without sinful complaining and arguing for the glory of the God of grace who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Amen. Let us pray. Father who art in heaven, we are thankful for thy word. Pray for the application of it to our hearts our lives. Give us the grace to guard our tongues from any sinful words directed towards thee or towards others. Guard our hearts as well so that hearts are characterized by gratitude and by humility before thy face. Graciously forgive all of our many sins against thee, including our sinful complaining and arguing Jesus' name alone, amen.